Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is, it is great to come together as a body, as a church family, and to lift up our praise and our worship to you because you are worthy, God. You are the one true God. You have always reigned. You're reigning today, and you will always reign. Thank you that when we come in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we have the promise in your word that when we meet in his name, you are right here among us through the, through the person, the presence of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for that. Thank you that you have given us truth in your word, truth that has incredible power. The power of salvation and the power of transformation for life. Thank you that you invite us, you encourage us, you instruct us to come together and when we do to pray to you, to bring our requests to you, that you're a God who cares about our needs. You're a God who wants to be intimately involved in our lives. God that wants to walk with us daily and answer our questions and calm our fears and give faith to our doubts. Heal our wounds. Give us hope in a bright future. Your word tells us those things, all of those things. Thank you for that. It's good to know that, Lord, as we stand here, a couple hundred people right now standing here, and with a couple hundred people, there's hundreds of needs. We're needy people. We live in a fallen world where there's pain and heartache. And Lord, I know that there were some that came in here this morning that are not even sure about tomorrow. Lord, whatever the need, whatever the concern, the fear, God, I know that you hear each one of our hearts. Just, Ladies and gentlemen, I encourage you just to lift those just quietly in your heart up to the Lord. Cry out to him. He, he is here to meet with you right now. He is here to meet with you. Thank you for that truth. Lord, I want to pray this morning as we do regularly. I want to pray for the other churches around this city. Churches that believe in your son, Jesus Christ, that believe in your truth. Some 250, 275 of those churches, those houses of worship that are meeting today. I'm asking your blessing upon them, Lord. I know ultimately there is one church, and that church is those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. Lord, wherever your church is meeting this morning in this city, would you bless them? Let the Word of God go out in power in each of those houses of worship today, this house and in every house of worship around this city. 
Let it go out uh, and bring the good news of salvation to those who do not know you. Let it go out in its sanctifying power, its transforming power to change and shape us more into the attitude of Christ. Let it correct and rebuke and train and instruct in righteousness as Paul wrote to Timothy. As the writer of Hebrews said, let it be like a double-edged sword cutting to the very dividing of joint and marrow, soul and spirit, judging the very thoughts and intentions of our heart this morning. Lord, we know ultimately that before you all things are laid bare. And so, Lord, we are here this morning to meet with you through the counsel of your word in the next 30, 40 minutes. I pray that you'd speak in power. Send your word out to accomplish what you desire and achieve the purpose for which you send it. Please. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I want to pray for our soldiers that are serving overseas, separated from their families, some right here in this church. Uh, God, bless and protect, encourage, support, reunite when it's time to do that. Pray for peace, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for meeting with us today. Thank you for the privilege of prayer that we can come and bring our needs to you so that the peace of God that passes all understanding can guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Before we open the Word of God this morning, we get to celebrate, get to celebrate in new life as displayed through baptism. If you look over here to my left, baptism is, if you're new to this, baptism is an act that an individual participates in that has accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And Jesus uh, instituted this and told us that we should follow his example as he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And in the act of baptism, an incredible picture is painted of the truth of what saves. That Jesus Christ is what saves. That in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, he saves. He died to pay the penalty for sin, was buried three days just as the Scripture said, and he was raised three days later to a new life. And so in baptism, when an individual is placed under the water, it's a picture of their sins being paid for in the death of Christ. And coming out of the water, it's a picture of the brand new life that Jesus Christ has given to them. So we're going to watch that symbol as Pastor Brian takes it away here. Pastor Brad, good morning. I have David Speedy here with me. Those who are close to him, we all call him Speedy. That's his name. And, uh, and I need to tell you something about this gentleman. This is a guy, uh, he's in our young adult college and career group that my wife and I lead, and he is a man who's been hearing God. He's, he knows God's been pulling his heart. He's been a Christian for a while, but God's been challenging him to step up and do some things that maybe are uncomfortable. And so he's, he's coming here as a decoration uh, to share uh, this time with the, the body and, and giving that glory to God. Uh, and this is a guy who I've been super impressed to get to know uh, because this is a man 
who wants to honor God with his life. He knows he's got a calling. God's been calling him to do some things, to step up, to walk in his faith, and be faithful to the Lord. So, um, David, sweetie, it's awesome to be here with you this morning. Do you acknowledge in this declaration that you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? He died for you. Um, yes. All right. Well, David, sweetie, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I baptize you. Okay, before we jump into our study this morning, I just want to extend an invitation to you. I'm going to just make it very brief, kind of whet your appetite. Maybe curiosity will uh, secure more than had I given the full announcement. But any of you that really sense a calling by God to prayer, that really believe that um, God wants you to be an intercessor, I want to talk to you for a few minutes after our service across the hall in the fireside room, I want to present an invitation, give a challenge to you related to a ministry of prayer that we're trying to kick off here in this church. And so if you'd like to hear about that, just take three or four minutes uh, after service. I'll meet you there across the hallway in the fireside room. Today we are going to begin a new section in our study through Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Last message where we were working through Romans. We were in Romans chapter 5, and after several weeks, we completed the section of Romans 5, 1 through 11, really kind of a big idea, a key thought in those 11 verses, completed that in our last study here in Romans. And this week, we are beginning with Romans chapter 5, verse 12, which in the 10 verses that follow from chapter 5, verse 12, to the end of the chapter, there is another incredible section here in this, the most profound, I believe, greatest letter ever penned. To whet your appetite, to get your undivided attention, let me just read a few comments from some very noteworthy uh, Christian personalities of history. Some of these you may know, uh, some you may not, but all of them were were renowned in Christian circles, here is what they had to say about these 10 verses in Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. Donald Barnhouse. He said, this section of Scripture is one of the most crucial passages in the entire Word of God. Referring specifically to the statement that Paul makes in Romans 5, 12, Donald Barnhouse said this, discard that simple statement made there in Romans 5.12, and you cannot maintain true Christianity. Hanley Mool said this, this paragraph is pregnant with mystery. James Montgomery Boyce, regarding this passage of Scripture, he said, failure to victoriously live the Christian life results from not understanding this passage, one of the most important in all of the Word of God. Warren Worsby, these verses are at the very heart of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And then finally, William Barclay, he said, 
listen, listen to the incredible emphasis he places here. No passage in the New Testament has had such an influence on theology as this passage. No passage in the New Testament has had more influence on theology than Romans 5, 12 through 21. Incredibly important passage of Scripture. So what we're going to do is over the next several weeks, it's probably going to take us seven or eight weeks at least to get through these 10 verses, these 10 critical, profound, influential verses. We're just going to kind of give an overview, a scratch the surface this morning. Let me just begin by reading the entire passage uh, to try to just get that concept. It's, it's pretty difficult to understand, particularly with just a cursory reading. But I, here's what I'm encouraging you to do. I'm encouraging you as we walk through this in our study the next several weeks, that you'd put this on a piece of paper or on some note cards, maybe put it on your mirror where you're going to see it in the morning or in your desk at the office, and just every day take you just a few seconds to read through these 10 verses. Every day during the weeks that we go through this, so if we're in this six weeks and you did it five days a week, you'd have read through this 30 times. I believe if you do that, if you have this in your head, when we are talking about this on Sunday, the Spirit of God will help use that to unlock the truths and help you see with clarity and depth of insight what Paul has included here. Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21. I know I've had you up and down this morning, but would you please stand up one more time as we just read through this, just in honor to the Word of God, would you stand Paul writes in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted when there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For if the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You may be seated.
Let's begin with context. Always a critical issue. How does this passage of Scripture fit into what Paul has already said in the first four and a half chapters of Romans? How does it complement and flow from that? Let me show you that as a way of context as we begin. First of all, what Paul has done beginning in Romans 1.18 and down through Romans 3.19, Paul has talked about the universal reality of sin. We, just, we looked at that over a number of months as we studied this letter. And what he showed us in teaching and setting out the context of the universal reality of human sin is that he did at least three things. He made a universal indictment against humanity with very clear language, with very um, pervasive logic. He described the human race as a race of sinners, not just in a general sense, but in a very specific, all-encompassing way he laid the charge before each individual, calling them sinner. So that is the indictment, universal indictment. Then he identified a universal conviction flowing out of that indictment. You get indicted, then you get convicted. Here's what Paul followed with, through sound reason and logic, he identified humanity into three groups. First group, he called the pagan or the rebellious. And he talked about how the rebellious, the outwardly, aggressively rebellious are under the judgment of God because of their sin. But he didn't stop there. Then he turned to the self-righteous, the moralist, and he showed how in the same way that the rebellious pagan is guilty, so is the self-righteous moralist guilty. And then he came to the final group and thereby finally encompassing all of humanity, and he talked about the religious how even the religious, in the same way as the pagan rebellious and is the sa- in the same way as the self-righteous moralist, that the religious are just as guilty under sin, just like the rest of humanity. So that when he was done with that universal indictment and conviction, he had drawn a circle around all of humanity, encompassing all of humanity, and he put a banner over that circle. And in Romans chapter 3, here's what the banner said, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Then into that dark, dismal, black situation, having drawn that curtain across the backdrop of mankind, painting us all against that black backdrop of guilt and death and the wrath of God. 
Then comes the great message of hope. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And he begins to talk about how Jesus Christ stepped into that hopeless situation and took what was impossible and transformed it. Took that death and made it possible for that death to become life. And he talks about how Jesus did that by providing a way for us to be justified, made righteous. And where we ended the last time that we were looking at Romans there, we were talking about in Romans 5, 1 through 11, the blessings of those who are justified. Gave a whole list in Romans 5, 1 through 11 of the blessings that come with justification, the salvation that Christ provides. That's the context of the first four and a half chapters of Romans that lead up to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 20. So how does this passage that we just read fit into that context or flow out of that context? Here is how. If you can grasp this, kind of get it locked in your mind, it'll help you see this logical progression that Paul is developing, this logical argument that, has, that is profound and penetrating. Paul followed with this in Romans 5, 12 through 21, he said, I'm going to show you why it is that sin is universal. I'm going to explain this reality that I've been talking to you about of the universality of sin in the human race, how we are all sinners and why it is that we are all that way and why sin has this overarching, all-encompassing dominion over mankind. I'm going to show you that in Romans 5, 12 through 21. I believe that's what Paul is saying. And then secondly, related to this picture he paints of Jesus Christ in the middle of chapter 3 up to the middle of chapter 5, he says this, I'm going to show you why it is that Jesus Christ can give to you what he gives to you. So with that context, leading up to this incredible, important, influential text, let's try to find out, unpack what Paul is teaching here. He says, opening up in Romans 5.12, the word there. Therefore, Paul now is drawing a conclusion based upon what he has just been teaching. He's drawing a conclusion and he is going to explain to us why the truth that he has previously mentioned works, specifically the truth of our universal reality of sin and Christ's ability to save. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Let's begin there. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death 
spread to all men because all sinned. What Paul is doing there is he begins to make a statement. And he makes a statement in verse 12 about all men sinning. Somehow related to Adam's sin. And then he pushes pause. He stops and he begins to take a detour. And in verses 13 and 14, what he does is he brackets or he puts in a parenthesis a statement that is going to explain what he has just said. He doesn't pick up his ongoing thought until he gets back down to verse 18. But in these two verses, 13 and 14, he states the commentary basically on what he has said in verse 12. So let's try to find out specifically what he stated in verse 12 that he felt like needed to be explained. And it is so critical that we understand the doctrinal truth that is included right here. That's why Barnhouse, that's why Barclay said this, this passage of Scripture right here has had more influence over theology than any passage in Scripture. It's related to what we're going to talk about this morning. You see what Paul does here, and by the way, folks, some of you may not like to hear this initially, but here's what I believe I can promise. It certainly works for me. If you will follow the logical progression of thought until the end, what is difficult to hear coming in is going to be a sweet song on the backside. What looks like a curse and an unfair treatment is going to be seen to be the absolute blessing and wisdom and graciousness of God. So what specifically is Paul saying here in verse 12? Paul is identifying Adam as our representative head. I'll explain that over the next few minutes. He is pointing to Adam. You see, in this passage, he points to two people, Adam and Christ, Adam and Christ, Adam and Christ. He contrasts them. He compares them. He looks at each one as a representative head of humanity. And when he begins, he looks at Adam and he talks about Adam being the representative head, the federal head for the human race. And the truth that he communicates is this, that when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, God, you remember the story, God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and he gave them dominion over the planet, made them rulers, told them to fill the earth and subdue it. But what he did is he said, but I've got one piece of ground, one little plot, a few square feet that are not yours. And the tree planted on this plot of ground do not eat the fruit of that tree because if you do, you will die. If you disobey this direct command that I am giving to you, surely I am telling you the consequence will be death. 
And folks, he was referring not just to physical death, which became a reality, but also to spiritual death and separation from God. But with that context in mind, what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, is that in that moment, in the genesis of time, at that tree, when Adam sinned, as our federal head, as our representative of the human race, we sinned also in that act. That in fact, it was not just Adam that is guilty for that sin, that you and I, that all of the human race, every single person ever born is guilty of committing that sin just like Adam was guilty of committing that sin. To make that even plainer, let me give you a couple of examples kind of to clear away the clutter here of what Paul is not saying. He is not just talking about similarity when he is pointing to Adam as our representative or federal head. He is not saying similarity in this way, that just like Adam was a sinner, you and me have the same problem. You know, we kind of follow in his footsteps. He blew it. He disobeyed God's command. And just like he did, you and I do that. And in that way, we're similar. That is not what Paul is saying. It's true that we do do that. But that is not what Paul is talking about here in Romans 5.12. Secondly, he's not talking about some genetic uh, passing on of a sinful nature that somehow Adam and Eve, because they sinned and then they participated in procreation, that God had enabled to work in the principle to work in their life, that the offspring that they birthed were now therefore under this sinful nature. It's true that that happened, but that is not what Paul is talking about here. What Paul is talking about is actual personal sin. He is using this example of Adam as our representative head, and he's dealing with it, saying, when Adam committed that act, the human race committed that act. And just as Adam was guilty and judged in that moment, the human race is guilty and judged in that moment. You see, in the early chapters of Romans prior to this, when Paul has talked lengthy about sin, he has been talking about sins, about the sins that people commit because they are sinners. But when we come to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it's a different subject. He is not talking about sins. He is talking about sin, singular. He is talking about the thing called sin. He is talking about, illustrate it like this, he is talking about the poison in the bloodstream, not the, not the external visible symptom of that that may show up on the skin, but about the poison itself that is flowing through the veins. He's talking about the thing, sin, in particular. And he says, when Adam sinned, in that moment, 
we sinned. And Adam's guilt we bear just like Adam bore that guilt. Folks, let me kind of give you the contrasting side of that and reason out where it lands you if you don't look at it like that, like I've just explained. If you believe that you're only responsible for your sin that you've committed in this life, if you believe that, what do you do with death? You see, death is the result of sin. Remember, Adam, don't disobey this command because if you do, you die. If you believe that because of your sin, your, the sins that you commit in this life, that death has hold over you, the dangerous implication there is this that you believe that before you committed one of those sins, you were innocent. That until you acted out on your sinful nature and broke the command of God, that up to that point you were innocent. And what the Bible teaches very clearly is no, you were not. You were guilty as charged in Adam's sin. You see, if you believe that sin is, that death is just a result of a person's specific sins, what do you do with infants who die? They haven't sinned, committed specific acts of disobedience. So if they haven't, why do they die? What about the mentally incompetent? Why do they die? If they're not responsible for their actions, why do they die? You see, Paul gives a, an illustration here to prove that we are in solidarity with Adam in a very deep, connected way, so connected that when he sinned in the garden, we sinned, and that we are as guilty of committing that sin as he was. Listen, here's his illustration to prove that. 13 and 14. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. How does Paul prove our solidarity with Adam in his sin? Just look at the progression here. Paul says in those verses, all men die. I think that's pretty obvious to everyone. Pretty incredible illustration to use because everybody on the planet could say, yes, the mortality rate is hanging right around 100%. All men die. Secondly, that death is the result of breaking God's command. God says you break the command, you die. Sin, death entered the world because sin entered the world. I think that is 
a pretty accepted reality. But then Paul says, what about the people that lived from the time of Adam to the time of Moses? You see, God's law was given through Moses. Yes, God gave a direct command to Adam that Adam broke. But what about the subsequent generations from the time of Adam down to the time of Moses, the time when God through Moses gave his law. The people that lived in that time period did not have God's law. They did not have the direct command of God. Therefore, they did not break the direct command of God. Therefore, why did they die? The point Paul is making is they did die and their death should prove something to us. And here is what it should prove. It should prove that the universal reality of sin leading to death has got to have a universal cause. So what possibly could be the universal cause for death from the time of Adam to the time of Moses when there was no sin by breaking the direct command of God? Therefore, those sins were not counted against people. So why did they die? And Paul's point is this. They died because they were guilty in Adam. They died because of their solidarity to the representative, to the federal headship of Adam over the human race. Now that is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, the syntax of the sentence, the verbiage of the sentence says it directly, but if you dig deeper, if you look down to the very word used by Paul for the verb sinned in the Greek, it's given in the tense, an aorist tense, which points to one act committed in past tense. Paul wrote that all sinned, talking about Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, past tense, errorist tense, completed fact, specific moment, specific event, specific person, Adam, that when Adam sinned, all mankind sinned, errorist tense. So Paul teaches that truth in the verbiage of the sentence and Paul teaches that truth by the specific word that he uses here for the word sin. So what Paul is doing here is he is establishing a principle. And the principle that he is establishing is the principle of this 
representative head or federal headship of Adam. His emphasis is not to talk to us about the federal headship of Adam. He is wanting to prove with an illustration everybody can understand that there is a solidarity connection that we have with our head. And once he has established that in an unassailable way, using the illustration of death, once that has been driven home and is undeniable, then he comes to the real key that he wants to communicate in the passage. And he wants to say this, that Paul's, that our solidarity to Adam is not the issue. The issue is our solidarity to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the principle of solidarity is just a principle. And a principle can have a po positive side to it, and a principle can have a negative side to it, depending upon where you line up with the principle, how you flesh it out in your own life. And in the same way that the principle of our solidarity to Adam can have such drastic, all-consuming, hopeless consequences to us because of the principle of solidarity. So can the principle of solidarity have incredible, blessed, indescribable victory through the principle of solidarity that we have with our second head, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is just in an unassailable way setting forth logic that should be seen and understood related to our connection to Adam, our sin in Adam and the death that follows so that he can come to the beauty of our connection to Christ and the obedience inherent in that and the life that follows. So he establishes that principle so that he can point to Christ. I said earlier that this principle, when first heard, can seem unfair, and there can be a reaction that rises up in our hearts against it with a quick reading, a quick glance, but that if you follow the logical progression to the end, you will see that it's not in fact a curse, that it is in fact an incredible blessing that God judged us in our federal head. Let me explain why that is. By asking two questions. If God chose not to do that, if he chose just to judge us based upon our own acts of sin and not based upon Adam's sin, where would that put everyone in this room? Guilty or not guilty? Absolutely guilty. 
anyone in here not a sinner? So if God chose to judge us based upon our own action, it might be fair, but folks, it would be such a horrific reality for us because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have actually committed acts of sin. But watch this. Because God chose to judge us in our federal head, our representative head, so that in Adam we are judged, then he can also judge us in our second representative head, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, that he can take the obedience of Christ and the righteousness of Christ and judge us as righteous and obedient in Christ because he has chosen to operate with us on the basis of solidarity with our federal heads. And if he didn't do that, there would be no hope for us. So what actually looks like an unfair curse by God is actually given by the blessing and the graciousness of God so that we are not judged based upon our own actions, but we are judged and based upon someone else's actions, either Adam's who disobeyed and experienced physical death and separation from God, or we can be judged by Christ who obeyed. And through him, we can be made the very righteousness of God. That's what Paul has been saying over and over and over again in this passage, in this letter to the church at Rome. That Romans chapter 3, verse 20, but now a righteousness from God has been made known. So the question this morning is, who do you right now have as your representative head? Is Adam, the sinner, your representative head? Are you still judged as guilty in Adam in that sin? Or through faith, have you accepted the one solution to the great problem? the solution of God sending His own Son who lived in perfect righteousness, walked in perfect obedience, never broke a single command of God, but then went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin so that if we put our faith exclusively in Him, we can become 
connected to our second representative head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul goes on to say that we'll see in the verses that follow in this section is the incredible truth that Christ's action of obedience and the resulting consequences of that are far greater than Adam's act of disobedience and the consequences that resulted from that. That Christ's act is far superior in a positive way to what Adam's act was in a negative way. That Christ is far superior. That if you have Christ, you have a representative head that does not just redo what was lost in the fall of Adam, but takes us far beyond what Adam had before he fell into sin. You see, Adam had a close relationship with God externally. What we have as followers of Jesus Christ, we have the very person of God, the Spirit of God that comes to actually make His home right inside of us. We don't just get earth and the dominion there and to rule over that, but we get the glory of heaven and we get to reign with Christ as joint heirs over the physical and the spiritual for all eternity. You see, what Christ is as our representative head is far greater than what Adam was in a negative sense as our representative head. And that's what Paul is going to drive home in this passage of Scripture. And folks, listen, so the point is the gospel Oh, please hear me out for two more minutes. The point is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it is this. Unless you are in Christ, unless you have thrown yourself undone before the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone, that you are guilty in Adam. Indicted, convicted, and sentenced to eternal separation from God in hell. What an incredible compliment the doctrine of this federal headship of Adam is to the gospel story because what does the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ teach what have we seen over and over again in the first four and a half chapters of Romans it's this that salvation is all of God and none of us it is everything to do with what God did in his son and absolutely nothing to do with what we have done that we cannot add one single grain of personal righteousness into the mix and if we try we nullify the entire process that it has everything to do with God now think about the incredible connection that is with what we just learned it is this We didn't do anything to be guilty in Adam. 
but we were guilty anyway. And in the same way, we didn't do anything to be righteous in Christ, but he makes us righteous anyway if we trust in who he is and what he's done. Oh, somebody get excited about that. That's your guarantee if you're a follower of Jesus. And if you're not, your guarantee is the wrath of God forever in hell. Folks, I cannot say it any plainer than that. You've got only one choice to come out from under the guilt of your headship with Adam, and that is through Jesus alone. And if you do not, how fearful of a thing it will be to fall into the hands of the living God on the day of judgment where your indictment and conviction and sentencing will be carried out for eternity. Would you stand, please? Worship team, would you please come? You hear this morning, convicted by the truth of God's word, saying, I want to be in Christ. I want to be forgiven in Christ. I want to have Christ as my representative head. I want to pray a prayer and just lead you if you want to make that decision this morning. You just pray something similar to this but meant in your own heart with your own words just to cry out to God and say, Father, Oh, Father, I recognize my guilt. And I'm actually grateful that you judged me in Adam, not just based upon my own actions, so that you can also judge me in Christ outside of my own righteousness. Tell the Lord that you believe that he did send his son his eternal, perfect, co-equal Son, His only begotten Son, to come and to die in your place and then to rise again to defeat death and sin and hell and to offer you eternal life and that you want to receive that in faith right now. You tell him that. And Lord, there are those that are doing that this morning. Let's protect them from the doubts of the enemy that he is going to raise up against them. And then, Lord, I want to pray 
for those who are believers here. And just, just with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, I want to pray for you. I want to pray this for me. Father, I believe one of the key truths of this passage that we're going to be looking at in the weeks to come is that because of this reality of this solidarity, this intimate connection, that what that means is that if we are in that solidarity with Christ, in connection with Christ, that His life is ours. And if His life is ours, then His power is ours. And His dominion is ours. And His victory is ours. And we don't need to drag around in sin and participate in it anymore. But we can live in victory because of our solidarity with the inconquerable Lord Jesus Christ. And so, God, I pray I pray that you would help us to flesh that victory out day to day in holiness of life, in obedience of action, applying your word, becoming more like your son. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.